We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala. We seek blessings of the Prophet. Peace be upon him. Continuing formations of the secular Talal Asad on page 61. All right, who's reading? Uh, where was that? Where was that? In fact. Yeah, we should see the first paragraph. In fact, liberal democracy here expresses the two secular myths that are notorious. No, we're, we're, no? Sorry, we're, on, uh, we're right after point six. Oh, oh yeah, 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 right yeah, yeah, yeah. Political liberalism in this sense is indivisible. It will either prevail worldwide or it will have to be defended by non-discursive action. Okay, so, so here, um, I think we've already sort of addressed the idea being that in terms of the mythology of, of liberalism, the idea being that we will win, right? And I think that's very much what you saw in the discourse of, of Obama especially, right? That, you know, we're all... We're all civilized and inclusive, but we are the best way, and we are going to win. Did, uh, you saw that with Bush and Obama, in a sense, right? Yeah, but I'm saying Bush doesn't get identified as, 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 somebody, a, as someone of the liberalism, liberalism spectrum. Oh. So it would be like Obama and Clinton, oh. meaning Bill Clinton. Got it. You know? And I think Bill Clinton oh, was more subtle. political liberalism. Yeah. Right. Bill Clinton was more subtle about it. Yeah. Um, he probably felt the same way, but Obama, I think, was far more blunt about it. Yeah. That, you know, the, the, the right accused him of not being, you know, enough of a patriot, but I think he was very, very, yeah. you know, patriotic I mean, and nationalistic. You yeah. saw it in the way he talked to, especially, the, I know, like, in the Muslim community, it was very patronizing. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, like, yeah. if anyone else said that, I mean, if Trump talked about us the way Obama did, yeah. it would have, people would have been outraged. Yeah, you yeah know? totally. But, like, uh, just the, the way he told us, well, you need to do this, as yeah. if, like, all our problems are so internal uh-huh. and inherent to Islam. Yeah. And like, yeah. I always think, like, who are you to tell us, like, how Islam yeah. should behave? From the member. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I was like, he'd be a good cathedral. <laughs> <laughs> okay, continue. But what Kahneman calls a liberal myth is, I would suggest, part of the deep structure of Binder's abstract argument. Liberal politics is based on cultural consensus and aims at human progress. It is the product of rational discourse as well as, as its precondition. It must dominate the unredeemed world, if not by reason, then alas, by force, in order to survive. Okay, so what is the general idea of liberalism? We're saying that, okay, you don't have a sacred text, everything is wide open, right? But what then becomes sacred is the idea that we win, right? And, and so this sentence is pretty cool. It is a product, as well as the precondition uh, uh, of rational discourse, right? So... The myth is a product of rational discourse, but the myth is also the precondition of, of this rational discourse. That, yeah, everything is open, everything is welcome, but it's going to, we're still going to, we're going to win. You guys, on the other side, need to be redeemed by being like us. In fact, liberal democracy here expresses the two secular myths that are notoriously at odds with each other, the Enlightenment myth of politics as a discourse of public reason whose bond with knowledge enables the elite to direct the education of mankind, and the revolutionary myth of universal suffrage, a politics of large numbers in which the representation of collective will is sought by quantifying the opinion and fantasy of individual citizen electors. Okay, so yeah, let's look at those two, those two um, secular myths. Number one, the Enlightenment myth of politics as a discourse of public reason whose bond with knowledge enables the elite to direct the education of mankind. So in simple English, what are we saying? That the key is knowledge, 
right? That the more knowledge you give, the more people will make reasoned decisions. That's a myth, because as you and I know, there people are going to vote uh, one according to you know economy, and two, do I like this person? You know, one of the problems of Hillary Clinton is a lot of people just didn't like her. I mean, she has a whole history of baggage, and she's a longtime Washington insider and all that stuff. But um, you know, a lot of people vote for Bush because he seemed like a likable guy. You know, and then the other one, the revolutionary myth of universal suffrage. So this is revolutionary because suffrage—the idea being that through the through the process of the state, you have self-determination. So you know, we speak of women's suffrage as the ability to vote, right? But the idea being that this is revolutionary uh, in terms of human history, but it is a myth because. Uh, America did not give it until recently, and if you're someone who is incarcerated, you lose it. The secular theory of state toleration is based on these contradictory foundations. On the one hand, elite liberal clarity seeks to contain religious passion. On the other hand, democratic numbers allow majorities to dominate minorities, even if both are religiously formed. The thought that the world needs to be redeemed is more than merely an idea. Since the 18th century, it has animated a variety of intellectual and social projects within Christendom and beyond, and European global empires. In practice, they have varied from country to country, unified only by the aspiration towards liberal modernity. But the similarity of these projects to the Christian idea of redemption should not, I submit, lead us to think of them as simple restatements of sacred myth, as projects that are only apparently secular but in reality religious. For although the New Testament myth may have assisted in the formation of these secular projects, it does not follow that the latter are essentially Christian. They embrace a distinctive politics, democratic, anti-clerical. They presuppose different kind of morality, based on the sacredness of individual conscience and individual right, and they regard suffering as an entirely subjective and accidental as bodily damage to be medically treated, or as corrective punishment for crime, or simply as the unfinished business of universal empowerment. Okay, so so what are these these key points here? Uh, first, he's saying, uh, don't regard it as something that is like a secularized religion necessarily, but there are de uh, definite, uh, definite, distinct uh, mythologies there. Okay, continue. Um, in secular redemptive politics, there is no place for the idea of a redeemer saving sinners through his submission to suffering. And there is no place for a theology of evil by which different kinds of suffering are identified. Evil is simply the superlative form of what is bad and shocking. Mm -hmm. Instead, there is a readiness to cause pain to those who are to be saved by being humanized. It is not merely that the object of violence is different. It is that the secular myth uses the element of violence to connect an optimistic project of universal empowerment with a pessimistic account of human motivation in which inertia and incorrigibility figure prominently. If the world is a dark place that needs redemption, the human redeemer, as an inhabitant of this world, must first redeem himself. That the worldly project of redemption requires self-redemption means that the jungle is, after all, in the gardener's own soul. Thus, the structure of this secular myth differs from the one articulating the story of redemption through Christ's sacrifice, a difference that the use of the term sacred for both of them may obscure. 
Each of the two structures that I touch on here articulates different kinds of subjectivity, mobilizes different kinds of social activity, and invokes different modalities of time. Okay. So the starting point of this paragraph is basically trying to make the point that this is not religious in the sense that you don't have a non-religious human who's coming in to redeem everyone. Um, that person needs to redeem himself. That's part of this whole process. And so it's not like you have a secular version of Christ when we speak of a savior. So the way people looked at Obama as a savior, the way people look at Trump as a savior, um, there's a savior aspect, but it is still fundamentally different than what it is in Christianity. And yet Christianity's missionary history managed to fuse the two, to fold the spiritual promise, Christ died to save us all, into the political project, the world must be changed for Christ, making the modern concept of redemption possible. Okay. And so, yeah, I mean, that's that. Let's continue with the next section. A kind of ending, reading two modern texts on the secular. So how, finally, do we make anthropological sense of the secular? It is difficult to provide a short answer. Instead, I conclude with two contrasting accounts that relate myth, symbol, and allegory to definitions of the secular. Paul Demand's essay, The Rhetoric of Temporality, and Walter Benjamin's book, The Origin of Germanic Tragic Drama. Taken together, they indicate that even secular views of the secular aren't the, all the same. Demand's famous essay is primarily concerned with the Romantic movement and the way it has been written about in modern histories. The Romantic image, says Demand, has been understood as a relationship between self and nature, or subject and object, but this is mistaken. At first, Romantics rediscovered an older allegorical tradition from the Middle Ages, but that rediscovery occurred in a world where religious belief had begun to crumble faced with the discoveries of modern knowledge. It was, as Weber had said, increasingly a disenchanted world. In, medieval world allegor in the medieval world, allegory was simply one of a set of figures whose meanings were fixed by the church's teachings for the purpose of biblical interpretation, and thus of exerting its authority. Because ecclesiastical disciplines were no now no longer unchallenged, and belief in the sacred had begun to be undermined, demand informs us that for the early Romantics, allegory was rediscovered in a different predicament. By virtue of the conventional succession of the signifier by the signified, allegory essentially played out an inescapable temporal destiny in which self and non-self could never coincide. Early Romantic imagery, therefore, constituted the site of a reluctant coming to terms with the secular, a world in which there are no hidden depths, no natural continuities between the subject's emotions and the objects of these emotions, no fulfillment of time. It could be seen that the real was not sacred, not enchanted, and yet, so demand puts it, this painful clarity about the real world that the early Romantics had at first had, in contrast to the mystified consciousness of religious believers, did not last. Very quickly, a symbolic or mythical conception of language was established everywhere in 19th and 20th century European literature and painting, allowing endlessly rich meanings to be recovered. Once again, Demand observes, symbolic imagination or mythic interpretation began to obscure the reality of this world. Okay, so the key, for our purposes, the key point is the evolution of what we speak of as enchantment, right? So the idea of the secular, the idea of the rational, is that you're removing enchantment. And what he's saying is that enchantment came and went, and then it came back again, that enchantment always seems to be there in our secular outlook. Okay. Uh, a term that people have been using a lot for the last half decade, or almost decade, is elevation. 
that when you hear, you know, like a really great speech, you actually feel elevated. Mm -hmm. okay? um, and, and so the idea of enchantment is that, okay, there is this something beyond that I'm attracted to. And that is still present in, in our art. I mean, in an easy example of that is just look at, look at almost every one of the top movies of all time. You know, well, I speak of Avatar. Okay, there we're talking about a, you know this fictional world in a different planet. Titanic um, is more of the romantic side of enchantment, but just the whole idea of journeying into space, it built in with it is just this whole enchantment aspect mm -hmm. that is part of so many, so many movies that we almost forget. I mean, what's the appeal of superhero movies? I mean, it's not because they're fighting evil. It's part of it is that they have these superpowers, and they're fighting evil, right? You know. What's it looks like you're about to say something. Yeah. What's the appeal of that one movie? What's that movie with, what's his name? Um, the Rosebud movie, what's it called? Oh, Citizen Kane. Yeah. Well, there, I mean... Is it, is it like disenchantment? I mean, that's an interesting point in terms of relation to all this. So, so Citizen Kane is one of those films that you have to regard as either the best film of all time or top two, top three. The only one that competes with it is Vertigo. But, I mean, a couple of things. Citizen Kane, when it came out, was very revolutionary in terms of film techniques. Mm. That's uh, one aspect of it, which today isn't as meaningful, right? Um, but the story is still given appreciation because, number one, it's, all right, it starts out with Rosebud, you know, and it's a mystery. The whole movie is a mystery about figuring out what is Rosebud. And then you figure out at the end that it's a sled, and that becomes super meaningful because the whole movie is about this guy who is so rich, he can do everything, and yet something inside is missing, okay? And that is so much part of the American narrative. Great Gatsby is very similar, mm -hmm. right? That, you know, he has everything, but inside he doesn't really have love in his heart, you know? And another aspect of Citizen Kane is that it's told out of order. It'd be one thing if it's just going from start to finish. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, you don't know where you are mm. uh, when you just turn on the movie in the middle. So a lot of, a lot of things. But in terms of, would, this be, would that be about disenchantment? I think today we definitely read a lot of it as disenchantment, that film, you know? Mm -hmm. Um especially if you frame it with, with Trump and all that, you know. Because the slide at the end is getting burnt. It's getting incinerated, you know. Uh, where are we? Uh, in his study of German Baroque. In his study of German Baroque drama known as Charspiel, Walter Benjamin describes a different... Charspiel. Huh? <laughs> I, I figured you, you were going to correct me. What did you say? Charspiel. Charspiel. I don't hear the difference in what you two are saying. You know. I'm saying it in fancier. Okay, yeah. Ich verstehe Deutsch. I don't. Yeah. I just got insulted in a language I forgot. <laughs> in his study of German Baroque, German Baroque drama known as Charspiel, Walter Benjamin describes a different trajectory, one that directs the reader to a secular world that is not merely discovered through clear-sighted knowledge of the real, but precariously assembled and lived in contradictory fashion. Although Demand also displays a sense of the precariousness of secular life in his writings, he retains a commitment to the secular as the real that Benjamin doesn't have. Mm -hmm. Thus, when Benjamin distinguish between, b distinguishes between subject and object, he begins not with the contrast between self and nature, as Demand does, but with the opposition between persons. It is the obscurity of intentions, not of objects, that generates suspicion, desire, and deceit in the exercise of power, and that makes that and that makes a simple resort to sincerity impossible. Benjamin's Baroque is a social world to which allegory and not symbol is central. The sixteenth and seventeenth century plays that Benjamin analyzes 
primarily German but also English and Spanish, reflect a conception of history that is no longer integrated into the Christian myth of redemption. That is one aspect of the secularity. Another less obvious aspect is displayed in the emblematic character of Socrates' death. The legend of Socrates' judicially imposed suicide, Benjamin maintains, constitute the secularization of classical tragedy, and hence of myth, because it substitutes a reasoned and exemplary death for the sacrificial death of a mythic hero. Although Baroque drama does not quite represent the complete triumph of enlightened reason, thus Benjamin, it does signify the impossibility of classical tragedy and myth in the modern world. It aspires to teach the spectator. Its movement typically revolves around the person of the monarch, at once tyrant and martyr, a figure whose extravagant passions demonstrate the willfulness of sovereignty. Its theme is not tragic fate, from which nothing can be learned, but the mourning and sorrow that are invested in the dangerous exercise of social reason and social power. So this is, this is an interesting point that I'm not understanding the whole of it because, uh, I mean, I haven't read Walter Benjamin in 20 years and I've never read the other person. But uh, what's interesting here is a different interpretation of looking at pre-modern art. Okay? Uh, or things that were taken as believable back then that today you wouldn't take as believable. So think about it the way today uh, when we would read Shakespeare's stories, okay, there's still the feeling that this is not my world, right? As opposed to, you know, most every movie that I'm watching today, including sci-fi fantasy films. And why does it not feel my world? Because the way that people are behaving in Shakespeare, um, there's something that's different than how we behave. And, and thus... He's saying these works today work to teach um, rather than say, you know, here's, here's how the world works. You know, here's what people used to be like. And, I mean, it raises the question then, what makes, you know, cl what makes classical literature, you know, classical literature? And is it just because some white people decided it? And some of that is true. But some of it is that still somehow it taps into things that connect with today. So the, the example I always give is King Lear. When I went through King Lear as a younger man, you know, it was just a story about this old guy losing his mind, right? And then Ron, the Japanese film, which was based on it, which I loved, was still, you know, part of it was about this guy who just loses his mind. Then when I had daughters, then I really began to appreciate it because he's losing his mind because he's trying to get the love of his daughters and the one he wants it from most is not giving it to him. Like the ones that are happy to give it to him, okay, he, he doesn't really care. But the one Cordelia, who he wishes would give it to him, she's kind of giving it sparingly. You know, in the way like we often talk about parents, you know, they give love sparingly. Um, and so that's why he's losing his mind. And so I'm saying on the one hand, they do tap into things that are universal. But on the other hand, the way they package it, you, look like, you, look, you feel like you're looking at something ancient that is also written in an ancient time. Mm -hmm. You know? <clears throat> Given social instability and political violence of early modern times, there is a continuous tension in Baroque drama between the idea of restoration and the fear of catastrophe. The emphasis on this worldliness is a consequence of that tension. Skeptical detachment from all contestable beliefs was conducive to self-preservation. In a striking sentence, Benjamin observes that even the religious man of, Baroque, of the Baroque era clings so tightly to the world because of the feeling that he is being driven along a cataract with it. Thus, Benjamin presents the emerging salience of the secular world in early modernity not by assuming the triumph of common sense 
or by invoking criteria acceptable to his secular readers for determining what is worthy of belief, he, dis he displays actualizing provincial rulers as they seek desperately to control an unruly world as allegorical performances. So, so the key point here in this paragraph is that what Asad is saying, that this philosopher Benjamin is saying, is that this art from the Baroque period, um, which a lot of it makes reference to the, the world beyond, is still positioned in this world. Okay? Now, I'm trying to think of what would be an analogy um, um, of now. Because, um, I mean, there isn't really much that's uh, religious in, its, uh, uh, in terms of you know, artistic conception um, in the way Baroque art was. Baroque art was very, very religious, but he's saying basically that it was still focused on this world. You know? uh, let me think, but I think you're fine. Why is allegory the appropriate mode for apprehending this world? Because, says Benjamin, unlike romantic symbol, timeless, unified, and spiritualized, Baroque allegory has a fluid temporality. It is always fragmented, and it is material. Allegory expresses, the well the allegory expresses well the uncontrollable, indeterminable, and yet material world of the, princely, of the Baroque princely court with its intri intrigue, betrayal, and murder. In belief... This world is secular, not because scientific knowledge has replaced religious belief, that is because the real has at last become apparent, but because, on the contrary, it must be lived in uncertainty, without fixed moorings, even for the believer, a world in which the real and the imaginary mirror each other. In this world, the politics of certainty is clearly impossible. Okay, so that, that's another key term, certainty versus uncertainty. And think about how much uncertainty there is, not in the sense of what's going to happen to me in my future, uh, although that's a little bit of it, but is there anything absolute? Is there any absolute truth? When we get to the level of quantum physics, then it becomes hard to even prove that you and I exist. Right? I think I might have given that example of this one student who he was going through various faith issues, and he was also in med school, and when he was learning neurology, he was, he was either being taught or he was inferring that everything I'm seeing might be nothing real. It might just be the synapses in my mind. And I asked him, can you, so he wasn't sure if God exists. Then I asked him, can you confirm for me that I'm sitting here in front of you? And he couldn't do that either. Right? And so there is that type of, of uncertainty. But the bigger point that, you know, in previous eras, there were certain absolute truths that were truths for everyone. And so if you disbelieved it, it was even worse. Mm. Right? Whereas today, yeah, you believe you what you want, you believe what you want, I believe what I want, and that becomes collective uncertainty. So who knows what's, what's, if there is even a real truth, or which one is it, mm. right? So a secular society is, by definition, an agnostic society. If you're growing up in a secular society like America, more than you realize it, you are internalizing agnosticism. Where does it play out then for a Muslim race in America? You know, Allah Ta'ala is only going to answer your du'a out of his wisdom. Stuff like that will give excuses for why our du'as don't seem to be getting answered. Right? And what it basically is saying is, we don't, we've been internalized not to have confidence that our du'as are being answered. Yeah. Would, you, would you say that that sort of outlook, this might be a bit too much of a reach, but that sort of outlook leads to some of like, these sort of existential anxiety people have in general in our society or in modern societies because there isn't this foundation or bedrock where they can sort of cling to mm -hmm. and everything is sort of uncertain? I think that's a natural consequence, you know. 
that the natural consequence of an agnostic outlook is, well, how do I know if anything's real, right? Or the natural consequence of a secular outlook would be nihilism, like, you know, yeah. what's true morality? Who knows? Who cares, right? I, I Why remember, yeah. like, the reading this sort of reminds me of, I remember one time I was reading about H.P. Uh, Lovecraft uh-huh. and his ideas, and one of the things he said was, like, he was, he had this whole idea of that, you know, the, like, human morality and all these things, he was like, they don't matter in the cosmos at large. Like, mm-hmm. we're these, these, like, absolute specks in this gigantic yeah. universe, and no one cares about this stuff. Yeah. And, like, you know, like, so, like, there's this, that's why he, he wrote that horror. It's very, like, this cosmic horror of, like, the universe could just destroy us at any moment. Mm-hmm. We're just a speck of dust, you know? Mm-hmm. And so that just seemed to me so, like, uncertain. And, like, how mm-hmm. do you, like, live out life like that? Yeah, I mean... I think that is a very common consequence of looking at the world through the lens of astronomy, mm. right? You know, I think we've discussed, like, okay, think of how insignificant you are or I am compared to the size of Chicago. Right? You know, I'm not even a blip. And now compare that you in the size of, the, of America or the size of the hemisphere or the size of the Earth or the size of the sun or the size of the solar system or the size of that strand of the Milky Way that the solar system is on, or the Milky Way, or whatever cluster the Milky Way is part of, right? Yeah. I mean, it's just getting closer and closer to zero, to levels that, you know, you, know, you didn't think would, uh, could be that small, <laughs> right? And then, and so, so if I'm that small and insignificant, like we had the conversation about Pale Blue Dot, right? No, we didn't have the conversation about that. You're the one who told me about Pale Blue Dot. Oh, okay. Is that book? No, it's the Carl Sagan's quote. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I yeah. And so, so. No, I thought you meant in class. Like, no, no, here in one of these things. I did mention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In any case, besides the point. I mean, maybe it was somewhere else, but I was pretty sure. It was anywhere, anyway. But the point being that uh, the natural consequence is to then decide that all right, if I'm that insignificant, if we're that insignificant, then who cares, right? If the if the world gets destroyed, who cares? Now, there's this interesting point in, one of, in this one book I'm doing with other students. Uh, yeah, student and bring back. Um, uh, it's called something like Ethics Explained. It's in, it's in the SoundCloud. Mm-hmm. And one of the essays there, maybe it's the first one, is basically talking about how you had people like Bertrand Russell, mm-hmm. who were atheists, who still believed that, oh, I think the essays, Does Anything Matter? And who still believed all the things that go with atheism, but, they, but Bertrand Russell was still outspoken as, uh, against nuclear armament, mm. right? And so these people are still saying it's still worth living. Yeah, it seems to be sort of the secular humanistic outlook. Um, what was I going to say? That, I think one, I remember reading something that really sort of, um, like from a Muslim point of view, someone did a great job of sort of like dealing with that, like that scope thing. Who was it? I think... Uh, that Turkish scholar, Saeed Norsi, had this like great little, it's his aphorism from one of his, uh, the series where he goes, uh, he says, the one who ordered and like, you know, um, ordered out the stomach of the flea is the same one who ordered out the universe. That's awesome. And I was oh, just that's, like, that's awesome. Because, you know, like, you, yeah. if you think about it, if you go down that way, the other way, it's the same thing. Uh-huh. Like, you know, get into quantum. Yeah, because you, you know, can get, I mean, as small or as big as you get, yeah. it's amazing. Yeah. Each way. So I remember reading that, I was like, oh my God, that's just, this, this, like, this helps to sort of, you know, deal with that. I'm sorry. That's awesome. Very nice one. Where are we again? I feel like losing this one. 65, the top of 65. That demand, right? Okay. 
that, uh, that demand attributes a secular attitude to the early Romantics while Benjamin places it in the earlier Baroque period is really besides the point for my purposes. What is worth noting is that through his account of Baroque allegory, Benjamin provides a different understanding of the secular than the one demand does in his discussion of Romantic symbolism. Okay, so here's the key point of this whole par of these sets of paragraphs. That there are different views on the secular, there are different seculars. Okay, so let's hear. For Benjamin takes allegory to be not merely a conventional relationship between an image and its meaning, but a form of expression. Citing Renaissance sources, Benjamin argues that emblems and hieroglyphs do not merely show something, they also instruct. Language is not an abstraction that stands apart from the real. It embodies and mediates the life of people, gestures, and things in the world. And what, that, what the emblems have to teach each other is more authoritative than purely personal preferences. The interweaving in, which in, such, the interweaving in such communication of what today many would separate as sacred and the profane remains for Benjamin an essential feature of allegory. Okay, so what is the overall discussion so far? What is the difference in relationship between allegory and symbol? Which is stuff that I think we talked in the last session, but briefly, what are we saying? Symbol is this thing that has a meaning other than what it is, right? Allegory is a story that has a meaning in addition to what it is. I mean, that's what it basically comes down to. And, and so religion then becomes a collection of symbols and allegories. Um, could, you, could you restate those? So symbol is... So a symbol is a thing uh -huh. that has a meaning other than what it is. Uh -huh. So think of what are some of the symbols of America. Think of like the Liberty Bell. Mm. Okay. Like bald eagle. Bald eagle. Yeah, and so the bald eagle is this bird that flies around, but it has, what is its meaning? Freedom. It's, yeah, it's the symbol of America, yeah. freedom, power. something like sharpness, power, yeah. Um, allegory is not a thing, but it's a story, mm. okay? And the story itself is its story, but then it has a meaning in addition to it, right? And so... So, um, very frequently, like in uh, like Malcolm X, when he would speak, for you referencing the Bible, he would speak of Moses and the Exodus, okay, you know, alayhi uh, salam, as an argument that, okay, the purpose for, for the black Americans is to separate from the Pharaoh, mm. right? And so those stories become allegory. This is one of those issues that on a side point, um, this is like some 20th century uh, Muslim scholars you know, that get framed as liberal scholars or academic scholars would get in trouble because they'd say the stories in the Quran are allegory. Okay? Mm. They're correct. They are allegory, but we also take them literally first. Yeah. Right? Meaning the splitting of the sea, we take literally, that's the majority opinion, and in addition, it's also an allegory. Mm. But if you say it's just allegory and it never happened, then, number one, you're asking for a whole lot of trouble from a lot of people, but that's fine if that's what you want your stance is. But number two, you're also making a historical stance. History does not work this way. Um, right. How are you making it historical? Because you're saying it never happened. Right. Mm. right. And then you're saying it could never happen. Right. I mean, the, the, I mean so the, the splitting of the sea, the way it's described in the Quran, really makes it sound like, yeah, we don't really seem to have an explanation for it. Right. The birth of Jesus, alayhi salam, seems like we don't really have a modern explanation for it. Now, on the flip side, what if it just happened once in history? So, Yunus, alayhi salam, going inside the fish. Okay, that seems implausible, but that you can say is possible. Yeah. 
Uh, that at least is not a scientific, not scientifically preposterous, except to say, well, maybe he would drown or something, but maybe he still was able to breathe or whatever. But all it had to happen was once, right? But the point is that if we're already believing that an angel is bringing these words from the sky to the prophet, peace be upon him, then those things are not that hard to yeah. accept yeah. also. You know, I had that conversation with a friend of mine. Uh, he's an old friend from high school. Yeah, Muslim or not Muslim? Not Muslim. He's Christian. So he was, uh, we ended up talking about faith and he was like, he was talking about how like it was really hard for him to buy in the premise of Isa Islam being, yeah. having the, the virgin birth, right? Yeah. And so then he said some things about Mariam al-Islam that, like, I don't want to repeat. It's just, yeah. it's just like, yeah, you know? And yeah, oh, like, you mean like the nasty things that people say? Yeah, yeah. And he was just basically like, he was like, yeah, he was like yeah. yeah, really, like, he's like, it, pro- like, it was probably just this. And, yeah. like, and I was like, well, and but his point was, he's like, it's hard for me to accept faith because its premise is a miracle. Mm-hmm. Like in Christianity. More so in Christianity, yeah. Right. He's like, Although it is for us in a different way, but yeah. Right. And I was like, you know... I, I understood what he was saying, like, you know, it's contingent on this miraculous birth, it's contingent mm-hmm. on believing in the death of mm-hmm. Jesus and then his resurrection. resurrection yeah. And so it's a lot of things to, like, buy into. And I was like, I get what you're saying, but I was like, if you buy, if you're still buying the premise of God, yeah, then those things aren't hard to, like... Yeah, it's not as much of a leap. Yeah, to accept. Yeah. And I don't know if that makes people of faith seem like these fantastical, like... But, I mean, that's part of the exact, the exact discussion here. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so, like, so, then how does it play out for us? How would you say that? Is the premise of faith a miracle? I think the premise of faith is trust. I mean, that's it's, it's related to the word. Yeah. But trust or in what? In the prophet's eyes, meaning the for what? us. Like, meaning we believe, like, you can't, like, you know, I remember Harun Mughal... It's a bad guy to quote right now, but uh, <laughs> he, <laughs> Keep going. he but he did say something that I appreciated. He was like, you know, uh, leaving faith would equate to saying the prophet Sayyidina was lying. Okay. Right, and I think for and even though it's an emotion, it might be an emotional thing. Mm-hmm. I think that's it's just hard even historically to like mm-hmm. for me to make that argument mm-hmm. that he was a liar. So, yeah. Oh, I I. I the way I would say that is, you said, is, is, is faith, the premise of faith, the miracle? Yeah. I think, I think it's, it's more about, like, reframing yourself to see, like, to see miracles differently. Okay, what know? does that mean? Like, man, this is hard to explain. Like, uh, I just, you know, like, I, I just feel like you can't just, you can't, I mean, I think the way, the the way faith works, I think this is, we kind of talked about this before, is you have to kind of, you know, see it all as a miracle. Mm-hmm. And you see everything as this sort of amazing thing that's just been given to you. Okay. And I think, like, faith, part of what faith does is make you get to that level. You're talking about a consequence of faith. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I so I would say uh, uh, the premise of faith is a miracle. Yeah. But the defense of the faith... Is different, okay. meaning because what is the Quran saying? If you have doubt, oh. then come up with something better, mm. or come up with something just as good, and and so like the the affirmation of faith gets into the rational, okay. but the premise, the premise is still is, is still a miracle. Now we could say that at the time of the Prophet peace be upon him, in Abu Bakr's case, it was trust in the Prophet peace be upon him from the start. Yeah. Whereas for others. Um, 
the trust was what they had because of his reputation, but a lot of people rejected him, yeah. right? Um, but then a lot of other people then did reconnect or did go back to him, um, but still were asking questions. Yeah. Right? Uh, but the point being that um, in terms of the whole process of the foundation of faith, I don't think it's wrong to say that its premise is still a miracle. Yeah. Um, but the defense seems to be many, many other things, including trust. I think trust is actually a major, major part of it. Yeah. Okay, uh, a little bit more. This is in at least two senses. To begin with, there is the power of a sign to signify. For in allegorical textuality, all of the things that are used to signify derive from the very fact that they're pointing to something else, a power which makes them appear no longer commensurable with profane things, a power which raises them onto a higher plane, and which can indeed sanctify them. Actuality is never translucent enough even to the agent, says Benjamin. It must always be provisionally read. The representation or signifier and what it represents, signified, are interdependent. Each is incomplete and both are equally real. Okay, so for our purposes, the key point is that they're interpreting how do all these things like sign and allegory work. And ultimately what we're saying is that even though allegory theoretically is fake, it's still functionally real. Right? You know, uh, like the discussion we were having yesterday about silence, you know, that uh, what is our equivalent for a physical act of expressing uh, apostasy? Because stepping on the Quran, even me saying it, I have difficulty saying that, right? Um, but that's not apostasy, you know. It is very serious disrespect. You know, like imagine, again, difficult to say, imagine stepping on your mother's neck, right, or her head. Right? Yeah, look at your expression. And so the point is that um, that doesn't make you a non-Muslim. Okay? But it is something so repulsive that you almost feel that you are. Right? But uh, the point is that in the case of silence, they're saying that icon of Isa Islam is so real that if I step on that, it means I've left my, my, my beliefs. Mm -hmm. Right? If I spit on the crucifix, it means I've left my belief. Wow. But if someone steps on the Quran, I will be very offended. Right? If someone makes a cartoon of the Prophet, peace be upon him, I'll be very offended. I'm remembering that line from Hassan bin Hajj's stand-up about cartoons. But okay. you'll, you'll get to it, inshallah. Yeah. But, um, uh, but the point is that it doesn't make someone a non-Muslim. You know? It yeah. doesn't make apostasy. But the point is that it becomes... Uh, the symbol is as real as a real thing. Mm. It's which, I, which I think is more of a statement about the human mind. That a lot of things, it'll be fascinating to see how neurology explains these things. Like, in, in, uh, does my brain operate the same way towards a symbol as it does towards a physical thing? Mm. You know, that'd be fascinating if it's the same operation. Because that means then my brain is reading it as the same thing. You know? Mm. So. Second, the interdependence of religious and secular elements in allegorical writing implies a conflict between theological and artistic intentions. A synthesis not so much in the sense of a peace as a truga day, truce of God, between the conflicting opinions. In other words, it is this conflict between the two poles that creates the space for allegory, so Benjamin maintains, and thus makes possible the particular form of sens sensibility called Baroque. Mm -hmm. In both demand and Benjamin, the secular is clearly opposed to the mythical. For demand, this means the exclusion of symbolism. For Benjamin, the in inclusion of allegory. These two, the two approaches seem to me to have different implications for research as well for 
as for politics. The one... Uh, the one calls for unmasking a collective illusion, for seeing through an enchanted world, the other for exploring the intricate play between representations and what they represent, between the actions and the disciplines that aim to define and validate them, between language games and forms of life. Because Benjamin tries to maintain a continuous tension between moral judgment and open inquiry, between the reassurance between the reassurance of enlightenment and the uncertainties of desire, he helps one to address the ambiguous connections between the secular and modern politics. And so, yeah, so, so the question then becomes, you know, how do these all relate to each other? So compare and contrast the secularism of America with the secularism of France, with the secularism of Turkey at its pinnacle, right? And think of how much mythology we are taught regarding America, the American story, the American... American narrative, progress, and everything. Yeah. I don't know if the people of France are taught as much as we are. And I don't know if the people of Turkey are taught as much as we are. But what does France have a ton of, much more than us, this ideal of liberty, equality, fraternity. Yeah. Like, this is what we are, yeah. right? And then what do you have with, with Turkey? You have Ataturk, right? You know, like the flag, you know, or the face of Ataturk is everywhere. Yeah. The Turkish flag is everywhere, way more than you see it here. Yeah. I mean, I don't know about the South here, but, I mean, like in Chicago, you don't see the American flag nearly as much as you do in Istanbul, right? Yeah. And then on top of that, um, you know, the grave of Ataturk is this big, you know, whatever, you know. Mm. But yeah, you were raising your hand. Uh, here he says, um, for demand means the exclusion of symbolism, mm. for Benjamin the inclusion of allegory, isn't yeah. that the same thing? So, so basically, I mean, what I'm hearing from that, he's saying, uh, um, one philosopher is saying that secularism is trying to get rid of all these symbols. Okay. Right? And be, in theory, as rational as you possibly can. Okay. Okay. And then what I'm understanding is that he's saying Benjamin is saying the opposite, which is that secularism is including allegories. Oh, okay. okay. But the basic, his overall point of that whole section is, you know, these are two prominent thinkers that have two very, very different visions of, of what is the secular, when you get into the real, actual nuts and bolts of it. He, right. seem, he seems to prefer Benjamin. He, I think he seems to be saying Benjamin is more, more, um, more accurate. Right. The idea being that, you know, he's, he's saying that secularism uh, is a value system of its own. It has its own mythologies and stuff, right? And how they function might be different than how they function in some aspects of religion, but other aspects are still the same. But the key point being that secularism is not as free from mythology as the secularists like to think. Mm -hmm. That seems to be the real big yeah. part of everything we've read so far. Mm -hmm. I read this quote about California, and it was like, uh, just the end of it, like, it was, it says, it was like, underneath this bleach sky, it has to work out, because here we run out of content. Oh, yeah, I think you mentioned that last time, like, yeah. okay, we've run to the end. There's yeah. no other place like, to go. I always think of yeah. that when we talk about mythology, because I've always imagined California as, like, an alternate life there. Uh -huh. You know, yeah. it's so weird, like... Yeah, for all of us from Chicago, yeah, California yeah. is, like, you know, weird is that place. Right, and it's like... Yeah. It just made so much sense when I read that. I was like, it's also, what's also interesting is, up until maybe post 9-11... When we'd speak about Islam in America, nobody would talk about California, right? Mm. Hamza Yusuf is this blip, otherwise there's nothing, right? Um, L.A., nobody would talk about it. It was just like a different world. Yeah. Islam was, in America was basically the Mississippi going up to uh, the East Coast. Yeah. And, but now it's like it's a major part in everything. Right. You know, but, uh, but I think part of it is also we just looked at that. Okay, it's on the other side of the Rockies, a different culture, a different planet. Who knows? Right. Yeah. Uh, I have to go. Um, so we'll stop here, inshallah. Um, are we meeting again tomorrow? Yeah.
Yeah, we're scheduled for two. Okay, inshallah. All right, subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nasafirika natubi ilayku akhri da'wana anilhamdulillahi rabbil alameen.